podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. And what an upset in the very first game of the ICC World 2020. It was the 12th over that I got the call from, could be the coach, or Jeroen Smith saying, Pete, you have to get your pads. And I was like, first of all, I didn't really own pads. I just had a bet in gloves. Tom DeGruyth, I probably wouldn't recognize him before I ran into him. But um, that innings was extraordinary. Some of the shots he played. We couldn't believe we were in that position. We're so excited to be in that position and brave enough to try and play our best crew and not afraid to lose. And they were on the flip side. They were, frankly, shitting themselves, scared that they were going to lose the game. The result of that game, it is still, after however many games I've played, 200-something games, that is still the best game of cricket I've ever played. Even now, when if someone asks me in Holland what I do and I play cricket, then people think, oh, that might bring up the fact that we might have beaten England one time. So that day was the biggest day ever. You just heard from Peter Saylor, Dirk Nannis and Peter Boren, three of the Dutch team to beat England in the 2009 T20 World Cup, or as it was then known, the World T20. This is Double Century, a podcast on the history of cricket, and this season is devoted to the stories of when each team in cricket had their first win over England. This episode is Netherlands to it. And when you think of England versus Netherlands, it's possible you think of football, perhaps England's 4-1 win over Netherlands in the Euros in 96. But today we're going to look at when Lords went orange. Let's start with the most unlikely member of the team, Dirk Nannis. So as an Australian with a Dutch family, what does English cricket mean to you? English cricket for me was always the team growing up that you were brought up that you wanted to beat. I mean, I've never been someone who's overly patriotic in terms of Australia must win everything or Holland must win everything. I've never worried about that. Borders don't really worry me too much. Because at the time I'd been playing in England and I knew most of the guys, I actually found them pretty friendly. So there was no sort of animosity between me and them. Peter Saylor is the current captain of Holland, but back then he was just a kid learning about the game. Well, to be fair, in 2009, I didn't know a hell of a lot about cricket and international cricket and English cricket, to be honest. Now I obviously followed a lot more closely with a lot of Dutch guys playing in the county setup. But what, what did it mean? Well, England is the closest to home that plays cricket. So it was is a big thing playing them. But it was also, I think, kind of surreal playing at Lords. I think that was more of the highlight than playing England, if I'm being totally honest with you, is that for everyone involved in that game, it was like Lords was like the mecca of cricket, isn't it? So there was, the, I think, the bigger thing than playing England, and obviously than playing England at Lords was, yeah, a massive thing. So it was cool. But I didn't quite get the complexity of it at the time. Peter Boren was born and raised in New Zealand, but he has lived in Holland for nearly 20 years now. And at least part of that time, he was the Dutch captain. When I grew up in New Zealand, English cricket meant late nights listening to the radio, basically. I was lucky when I was young to go and live in England for a year when I was nine years old. And that was my first sort of taste. Got along to Headingley because we lived in York. My old man took me to Headingley when actually when Tendulkar made his debut for Yorkshire. English cricket, I guess, for people who grew up where I did in New Zealand, then it's sort of the home of cricket, I guess, and, and Lords in particular being the home of cricket. I'd actually never been there before 2009. I asked Nanis if he grew up following Dutch football. I would always support them in the World Cup, and Arkasay and Balbake, where my parents were from, 
was the team that I would look at. And, and, you know, when you used to get the results in the newspaper and every couple of weeks you'd get the actual league table and I'd follow that. But the only thing that was Dutch about me was a couple of Dutch parents who never became Australian and my Dutch passport. I'd spent three months maybe when I was a kid. And when did you realise that they had a cricket team? Oh, I don't know. I reckon I was already a first-class player, so that would have been 2006, which... I reckon it was the first time I was in England and someone said that the Dutch were playing somewhere. When you hear that the Dutch are playing somewhere, who knows what the hell the team's like? I had no idea. I mean, I came into cricket not knowing a great deal, so it was all news to me. Boren's career was much more standard. He was in the age group system of New Zealand when he got an unusual offer. And we had a guy called David Trist who used to coach New Zealand and had spent a lot of time at my club that I'm at now, Fair in Holland, but I'd grow up in New Zealand and I had a Dutch passport. I've got Dutch family and we always celebrate St. Clark's and proud of our Dutch heritage, but I didn't, I mean, it's going to sound really bad, even though I was a pretty big cricket fan, I didn't actually really think about Dutch cricket until my last year of school when he said, what are you going to do next year? Do you want to go and play some cricket in Holland? And uh, I wasn't really sure what I was going to be doing next year after school I didn't really know anything and um what, what's been 20 years and I'm still sitting here at the same club that David recommended way back then sitting in a physio room now doing a Zoom meeting with you so yeah. Nannis was noticed when he entered county cricket. So 2008 I played for Middlesex and the Dutch team found out that I was playing there on a Dutch passport so that was the first time they knew that I was Dutch and there was someone in England playing on a Dutch passport. And around that time, maybe four seasons of T20 cricket in Australia, and I was definitely the leading wicket taker in the country, I don't know that, over that period. I don't know how many months out, they have to pick their squad of 30, and I wasn't in the squad of 30 for Australia. And I knew the Dutch had been calling all the time, and I at this stage of 33, and I thought, you know what, I'm never going to play for Australia. Let's just let's play in a World Cup. Why not? And so that's what I did. That's why I said yes, because they were interested. It wasn't that I was playing for the homeland or anything like that. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, I was just wanting to play in a World Cup for my own personal reasons, but to say that I've done it. Here is Selah explaining how he got into the game. By football. My brother was playing football at this club in Schiedam called Hermes Davies. He had football training and I was just a five-year-old running around just, and my dad was picking him up, so we had to wait. But they actually had kind of this thing where they did a cricket training because obviously there's also cricket being played at home. So it was kind of like getting to know cricket training, which they do once or twice a year. And throwing a ball um, actually went right. Betting wasn't particularly great, but I could throw a ball and they were like, oh, you're good at this. You should play it. It did take two or three years before I actually started to really enjoy it. Dirk Nannis was a late-blooming cricketer, but his first few years of professional cricket had him involved with Victoria, Middlesex and Delhi Daredevils in the IPL. He was used to a high level of cricket. Playing for the Dutch was something else. Oh, God, it was different. It was like, well, I'd come from a, a first-class setup in Victoria that I thought was probably the best-run first-class setup that I ever played in from an organisational point of view, tactical point of view, medical treatment point of view and then went into the Dutch team where everyone was amateur. I mean, it was Ryan Tenderskada. I don't think there was anyone else who were professional cricketers. And so the conversations were just so different. Normally, in a, when you go on a tour, even in first-class cricket, you don't eat together. You wake up in the morning, you go down to the hotel breakfast, you do whatever. 
the moments there together are so few and far between that when you have breakfast, you all go to breakfast at the same time. And then you'll all go for a walk. The physio brings his boombox out and you're walking down the streets listening to techno music, walking to a local park. That stuff's just bizarre. It was so weird. It was beautiful. But at the same time, you think, hey, God, that's not how a professional team operates. There was a feeling at the time, and honestly, it still goes on today, that many of the Netherlands players were of Dutch origin, like Boren and Nannis, but few were actually born there. This wasn't really the case with this team. Jeroen was a Dutch guy, Tom de Groot, Dutch guy, Edgar Schifley, Dutch guy, myself, Dutch guy, like Dutch-born, Bas Suiderin, so that's, that's half. The Netherlands' first ODI was at the 1996 World Cup, but cricket had been in Holland for a very long time. The game was brought over by British soldiers during the Napoleonic War, and it was quite popular for a time until the Boer War when English things weren't quite as trendy anymore. The Dutch played their first international game in 1905 against Belgium. In the 1950s, the West Indies and Australians toured there. It was in the 1980s that they started producing county players like Paul Jan Bakker, who took a lot of wickets for Hampshire. And in 1989, a Dutch team without backer beat an England 11 that had Peter Roebuck, Alex Stewart, Derek Pringle and Nassau Hussain. It was a 40-over game and they rode on the back of the great Nolan Clark. It was at this point that Dutch cricket really moved into the top level of the game. Obviously, they played quite a few World Cups over the next few years, starting in 1996. But coming into that game against England, the Netherlands had won 18 ODIs and T20 internationals out of 48 attempts. But they had only ever beaten associate teams. They were a decent team on the rise, but they just never really made an impact on global cricket. And it didn't look like they were about to when the practice matches began. Here's Ceylon, Nanas and Boren talking about those early warm-ups. We got absolutely hammered twice. We played Bangladesh and Kent with a very small boundary, and I think it was Shakib or Mushfika who just destroyed us. I think at Canterbury they scored 220. And then we played a lovely ground. We played New Zealand. We played Ireland and we drew. Actually, I bowled a super over, went for four, and we lost. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Anyway, so you're kind of just thinking, yeah, it's great fun, but up against serious teams, you're going to be absolutely flogged. Not really surprising because we were pretty much a bunch of damages against a fully professional outfit. So the whole thing, including the warm-up games, was sort of like just a cool adventure, really, at that time in Dutch cricket. And for us, I mean, we weren't exactly getting on the bus after getting fresh and warm-up games and going home and thinking it was the end of the world, you know. Even they were a cool experience. And that was the first time I started to realise, like, these guys can hit the ball so hard. (laughs) That wasn't funny. Brendan McCullum played, Ross Taylor played, uh, Jesse Ryder. Standing at point wasn't much fun. That was the first time. Obviously, we played a little bit of cricket, but not that intense and those those guys then started to realize like they hit the ball so hard and twice i think both teams scored 220 or 230 against us was tough but that's when you've got the pros obviously to guide you through the oh this doesn't mean anything and it's all about the big occasion and england's got a lot more to lose than we do that stage you don't really think about them when you just get hammered around the park you just got like it's gonna be a struggle but yeah the warm-up wasn't great here's boren and sailor on how the team were thinking before playing england Going into the game against England, did you give yourself any realistic chance of winning? I don't think we'd ever thought about it. I hadn't thought about winning. And as a team, I think we were just thinking about enjoying the experience. And I think that probably showed in our cricket. And, you know, the guys obviously, we're not, although they're amateur, we're amateur. Everyone had played cricket all their life. And people played cricket as a serious thing. It wasn't like a bunch of club cricketers in a park. So 
we were looking forward to playing on a good wicket and facing some of, you know, Jimmy Anderson. I mean, it was more an excitement than thinking we were going to win. It certainly never really crossed our minds that that was even an, an objective. I don't think we even really talked about it. Well, to be honest, I don't think anyone really, really believed before sort of that day that we could actually do it. If and that's me being very honest, is that the odds weren't in our favour. You know, I think it was a 500 to 1 outside chance we were winning or something. The, the chat was more about this is a one-off occasion rather than, you know, this is the tournament, but it was all for us was about that game. One advantage that the Dutch had was that Dirk Nannis was close to the world's fastest bowler in the world at this time, regularly clocking around 95 miles per hour. And that's just not a thing associate teams usually have access to. Here is Boren and Sailor on Nannis's pace. Yeah, I mean, that was huge. It massive impact. For, it was huge for us. We had a decent bowling attack. Edgar Sheffield was a very, very good bowler. But you need that point of difference. And at that time, particularly, Dirk Nunes was one of the best bowlers in the world. He was one of the quickest bowlers in the world. And the only thing I do remember is that Dirk Nunes was this the first time he was bowling at full speed. And I was standing at square leg. And the only thing I could think of was like, wow, how quick is he? <laughs> you know, like, first ball. Big Dirk Nanus comes storming in. Can you take me through your first ball, please? <laughs> well, this is my first ball of international cricket. <laughs> and I'm bowling from the um, nursery end. And it's just a full toss outside off and Ravi Bapara whacked it to the fence. So it was quick, but it went to the fence even quicker. It was eye-opening, put it that way. Nanus's start didn't go quite as well as they hoped, and England did get off to a flyer. Terrific start. Gone up in the air, a lot of bottom hand and enough clearance to get him a boundary. Always a good part of the ground to hit the ball and exactly 100 on the ball. Here's Sila Boren and Nanus on the beginning of this game. They start very well, England. They score a lot of runs. At that point, are you thinking this is another 220 run innings? Actually, I wasn't really paying attention to the score. Because obviously at that stage, you're 19. The only thing you think about is like, don't ball half tracker or double bouncer or just do it right. Because to be honest, not one six was hit. So it didn't feel like it was going out of control quickly. I think the occasion didn't really, for me at that stage, obviously being youngsters, just standing there like, oh, this is just amazing. The ball was floating around. And I wasn't really thinking about this is going to be 220. It was more like, oh, this is just cool. Also shows you how amateuristic, well, first of all, me was, but also the team. I think, but there weren't too many boundaries, like sixes and, like, if the ball disappears and you have to wait for two minutes for it to come back, it just feels a lot worse than when the ball's getting hit for four, I suppose. Yeah, obviously, at, at 100 for none, probably just hoping we were going to get a wicket. They were 100 after 10 or something like that, from memory. They were whacking us everywhere. And Ravi Bapara was someone who, during the times that I'd played in England in county cricket, but there was something about him that I couldn't bottle him. He just whacked me everywhere for fun. And Luke Wright, I always thought he was an excellent player, but he took us down. But, but for some reason, I don't remember Luke Wright hitting me much. Like, I didn't even remember he was in the game. <laughs> Looked yeah. at the scorecard, he's a top scorer. <laughs> yeah. But as Sailor and Boren point out, Netherlands did fight back and England slowed down. Peter Boren and Ryan were bowling actually quite well through the middle because once we got that first wicket, which was of Boren's bowling, I think, because it was also like kind of rainy, it was a crappy day, rainy, cold, not very much to enjoy, really. We were going well at that stage. T20 cricket back then, 
it was a bit different from now. And batters still came in and thought they had a little bit of time. It was never easy for a new batter. And if you look at that game from 100 for none, we got consistent wickets throughout the rest of the inning. So everyone sort of came in, based 10 balls or so, had a bit of a look, probably went and run a ball, and, and they only got another, what, 65, where that would never happen these days because someone would come in and get 30 off 10. But none of this mentions how bizarre it was that in the death, the Dutch used young Peter Saylor bowling his left arm orthodox. So we were going into this game with five bowlers and five bowlers only. When you only have five bowlers to use, it's kind of like a gamble of like, well, then we have to throw the ball to him. And yeah, actually, I got a wicket in that last sort of over. It was the 19th. You think about it, it would only happen somewhere in Nagpur, India, when the ball's turning square. But even then, they don't really bowl a spinner at the last sort of two overs. So yeah, game changing. <laughs> Do you remember what you did after you got Paul Collingwood out? Yeah, I, yeah, I did. I was rooming with Peter Boren and we were watching a horrific movie, something with Chuck, good luck Chuck, something like that. And Jessica Oba played in a movie, who is a very attractive uh, actress. And she was taking care of penguins. But that night, I was taking care of Pete Boren because he was injured. So I had to go to the vending machine, get eyes, get this, get that. And he was like, oh, if you get a wicket tomorrow, do a penguin dance for me which I end up doing, which after that, everyone said, oh, now we're into Viet Lord, you kind of have to do it. And I was crazy enough to do it. So I was took the wicket of Paul Collingwood and uh, yeah, I was dancing like a penguin. <laughs> I look back at it now and go like, wasn't me. <laughs> no, you're young, you're naive and you think it's kind of cool. And then a little bit later, you're older and you think about it like, you idiot. <laughs> Don't ever do that again. <laughs> nice straight bat, straight to the field at all. Good finish. So 20 overs gone. England got 162 for five. England made 162 runs with a run rate of nine in the first 11 overs and then a run rate of 6.9 from then on in. The innings finished with James Foster and Rob Key stealing ones. Here's what Nanez and Boren were thinking at halftime. Uh, 160 is too much. That's what I thought. I thought 140 were okay. 150 maybe. 160 starting to stretches, particularly against side bottom and broad. They've been really good. I think side bottom at that stage had the ball on a string. I think we were more thinking, wow, let's go and have a bet on what looks like a great wicket and see what we can do. And uh, I think it was more excitement. It was, I don't remember any like serious chats in the change room about how we were going to go about it. It was just get out there and watch the ball and have a go. Yeah. Someone would have had to play in innings of their life. And, and in everyone's head, well, certainly in my head, the talk is always that it's on Tendo's shoulders and it's up to him. Not too many teams win games of cricket when there's one guy who's got to make the runs all the time to win. In 2003, Ryan Ted a South African with Dutch citizenship, started playing for Essex. But over the years, he's played in almost every T20 league around the world from the IPL on down. But this was before he became a global T20 star. But he wasn't batting at the top of the order. They kept him for the middle very purposefully. And the Netherlands opened with the impressive frame of Darren Rikers. His nanas, Sailor and Boren, talking about him. If I remember right, he was a debt collector. I reckon that was his job in real life. He was a debt collector and don't know if I should say it. We had a practice game out at the Oval. But the game after us was India-Pakistan and they were selling tickets to this India-Pakistan practice game. And so the Oval's full and we get complimentary tickets. But, of course, no one's coming out to watch the Dutch versus Bangladesh, but we've still got our complimentary tickets. He handed them off to his old man. His old man went out onto the street and scalped them. <laughs> so we scalped the Netherlands complimentary tickets. 
There's <laughs> probably more than he made for playing in the tournament. Oh, absolutely there was. There's quite a few examples nowadays walking around T20 cricket, which are not the most athletic type of cricketers, but if you can hit the ball a long way, especially in those first six, there's not too much running anyway. He used to coach me when I was a kid. He was never going to hold back. and That was the way he played. And I guess hitting a couple of balls out of the park early gave us a bit of momentum, a little bit of energy on, on the um, sideline, for sure. I do remember sitting there buzzing. Uh, and it's six. There in Riga's, it was huge men sitting in the bus. So I was pretty relaxed in the bus, and he was just like shaky. Playing England at Lords was like a massive thing. He obviously knew his cricket. I quite didn't. He hit a six. He must have hit the splice, and somehow he still managed yes. to get it over. Not even in the middle of the splice. It hit like the edge up near the splice. There was no reason that should have gone for six. And that was one of those ones that happened throughout the entire game where an edge could have gone to hand, but no, that every edge, every half chance went to ground or went over the fence for six. And then I heard a little later after the game stories that his dad, so you've got Darren Riggs, who's a huge man, his dad is arguably bigger, just standing in the stands saying, my son is playing at Lords. Look at him. How fantastic is it? And that guy was 34 at that stage or whatever. And his dad was so proud of his son playing at Lords. I mean, yeah, how good is it? And yeah, he, he pumped it. My dad, I said, oh, you're going to come and watch cricket. And he hadn't actually seen me play. And then he always said when I was a kid that he would come and watch me play a test match at Lords. So when we knew that the draw was out, I said, well, it's not a test match. But he said, well, it's not a test match. So he didn't come. But he's always talked about Lords. We're going to play a test match at Lords. We're going to come and watch it. Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, you can't describe it in terms of an experience. Yeah. Tom DeGruth had played three major T20 matches coming into this. This innings against England would make up 24% of his career T20 runs. In total, he played 98 T20 enlist day matches. This score against England was the third highest in those. Before this, DeGruyth never made any runs. And after this, he kind of barely ever did again. Here are Sailor Boren and Nana's on him. Tom was probably surprised he was playing because uh, Mudasa Bukhari got injured. And Tom was like, we were trying to protect Ryan or getting Ryan in sort of that perfect situation so he could finish the game off single-handedly so that's why tom we lost two wickets was it inside a power play so he went in at four only to not to have ryan in that early in the t20 innings i know tom pretty well he probably admitted it himself he never played like that before and he never played like that after probably wouldn't recognize him if i ran into him but that innings was extraordinary some of the shots he played I mean, I can remember when he came down the wicket last ball, the power play, and hit Stuart Broad over to six. It was just a ridiculous shot from back of the length. Beautiful cricket shot, too. It wasn't flogging. He played some proper shots. Tom DeGruyth at this stage was in and whacking them, and I'd never seen him play before or since where he actually hit the ball anywhere near as good as what he did. Absolutely played out of his skin. When he just hits Stuart Broad over his head, and everyone's just a little bit like, wow. And I think... When you would ask Tom, he would say he was in the zone, but he was just a gun that day. It was so good. I mean, those reverse sweeps, I think it was in at that stage, but like his reverse sweeps, because he also kind of played with back of the bed and stuff. He was being very, very good to Adil Rashid, who was playing his first game, I think. So like, again, more nerves on him than I suppose on Tom, who was just going out there and enjoying the occasion. But yeah, he, he played the gem of an innings. Here's a weird Tom DeGruyth fact for you. 
In those 98 matches I mentioned, three of those were at Lords. In one he never batted, and in the other two he made his second highest and his third highest professional scores. Or to put it another way, in almost 100 matches he passed 45 three times, and two of those were at Lords. This innings he made 49 from 30. In his T20 career he would end up with an average of 13.5 and a strike rate of 91. And the innings were so good that it completely stoked up the Dutch fans, as Boren and Selah mentioned. No, it wasn't like a normal cricket game. Like we had loads of Dutch people there, and they could be good. We could tell that they were there, all in orange and everything. So, oh no, no, definitely not thinking that it was like a normal cricket game. No, we weren't really thinking about stoking up the atmosphere or anything. But basically, I can remember spending nearly the entire time doing just that. When you're young, you want to become a football player, right? So when you were I don't know, six years old, you go up to the stadium, there's, I don't know, 30, 40,000 people there, and you just go like, this is what I want to do. So I guess kids in England, Australia, when you go to your first big crowd or your international fix, there's a big crowd, that's where you want to say, well, I want to play cricket and do this in front of... wasn't really in on the top of my mind thinking I want to do that, and it's just like all normal until you go onto the field. And what kind of stands out is that in Holland, whenever we celebrate sporting events or Kings or Queen's Day... Everything is orange, so it was like a kind of dark crowd, just normal people, and there's like a little block of orange, which makes you feel very Dutch at that particular moment, because it's just like, oh, that's our colour. I asked Boren when he thought they were a realistic chance to win this match. I think as soon as I went out to bat, we'd already had a good power play. So batting with Tom, we were thinking about winning the game 100%. Although I'd gone up to be a pitch hitter, from what I remember, we were trying to win. I wasn't just trying to slog every ball, but I think we played pretty smart cricket for quite a while in that game. Obviously, we still ended up having a bit of a choke, but if we'd just tried to slog the whole time, I think we would have probably fell short. We played it pretty well, I think, in those middle overs. It would have been 12 or 14 overs, you know, I reckon. But there was always that chance. You just always think, ah, the rock's going to set in. Something's going to happen. Like all inexperienced teams or teams that are under-resourced, you're going to lose a clump of wickets really quick. It just didn't happen. It was kind of the 12 over that I got the call from Jeroen Smith saying, Pete, you have to get your pads. And I was like, first of all, I didn't really own pads. (laughs) I just had a bed and had gloves. So it was, it was like orange pits, so we kind of had to share them. Well, everyone else kind of had a sponsor. I, I didn't. I just had spikes in a bed. That's, that's all I had, pretty much. But there was the moment of, like, I didn't want to face, well, Anderson or Sidebottom or Broad. It was like, no, no, I don't want any of that. But it was like, you have to get your pads on because it could go quite quickly later on in the innings. With three overs to go and wickets in hand, including the captain, Jerome Smith, who had moved himself down the order earlier, Netherlands only needed 21 runs. But that is when the mindset changed. Here's Selah and Boren. I think then we got to that stage of like, we should win this, which is a dangerous mindset to be in, I suppose, when you're so much the underdog that you all of a sudden you're expected to win, pressure comes on and you lose. And I think that was so perfect that we had Tendo always at the crease at that stage. Well, it was really pretty nerve-wracking. Like, we really should have won that game pretty comfortably. My dismissal was shocking. It just started raining quite heavily, actually, and uh, there was just no need for my dismissal. Uh, I think Von Bunga was caught on the cover boundary, and then, like, I can't remember who it was, but he caught it in his arm and uh, maybe looped right or something. And it was coming down to the wire. So I went through the game. I think they had nine clear-cut run-out chances, of which about four or five of those were in broads over alone at the end. Yep. It's almost impossible to have that many run-out chances and not get a run-out. Yes, I agree with that. I reckon they felt under the pump and nervous of what might happen. 
if they lose. And I think that was probably the biggest thing. But no, not so much panic. I think they were just frankly shitting themselves that they were going to lose and what's going to happen to me or what's going to happen to us. That's the vibe that I got. We couldn't believe we were in that position and we're so excited to be in that position and brave enough to try and play our best crew and not afraid to lose. And they were on the flip side. They were just frankly shitting themselves, scared that they were going to lose the game. Admittedly for them, it's a pretty big game as well, the first game of the home World Cup. So it's not as though it's just a regular game of cricket for them, but for us it was the biggest thing ever. The thing was we had Tinder Scudder coming down the order. He was our pro. He was basically the guy who won heaps of games for Holland in all formats, but he was our banker. And while he was in the middle, he sort of felt like he was going to hit a couple of boundaries and win the game. Well, that Stuart brought around the wicket sort of tactic trying to hit wide hole from around the wicket. And you could see Tino getting more and more frustrated trying to whack it over the league side. Where, For me, my feeling was he'll get one, right? Tino will get one, and then it's all over. And uh, it just never quite happened. Let me first state, I think in the context of T20 now in 2021, it was a very good over. Apart from the fact they needed to defend seven, there was a lot of debate that was about who was going to bet next. The captain, Jeroen, was like, I'll go because responsibility and I'm quick. Then there was a bit of chat from, well, Dirk is a professional, so we kind of have to send in him. There was no chat I was going to run in. <laughs> Halfway through the overs, like, oh, Pete, you were pretty quick, so maybe, maybe you have to run too. And I was like, I prefer not. I had my pants on or someone else's pants. If we'd gone with the ball, I'm pretty sure we would have got a couple through the offside because we just kept shanking slog sweeps against wide Yorkers back to the bowler. <laughs> Well, maybe I'm just saying, I don't know what happened every other ball. I remember the last ball, but I feel like that happened quite a bit in that over. It's hard for the Dutch players to really describe what happened in that last over. But let me have a crack at it. Stuart Broad decided to bowl right arm around the wicket to the two right-handers, Ryan Tendiskata and Edgar Schiffle. The first ball was a wide Yorker to Tendiskata, and he bunted a ball a couple of metres from Stuart Broad and took off for the run. Broad missed a simple underarm run-out. It was the sixth run-out chance that England had missed so far in this game. Next ball is another wide Yorker to Shifley. It comes back to Broad again, who this time decides to dive for the stumps as Shifley does as well. It looks like Broad might have run him out, until the third umpire notices that the ball may not be in his hand. In diving, Broad landed just before the stumps, and the ball dropped out of his fingers before he breaks the stumps, meaning England missed their seventh run-out chance, and in the dive, Shifley has hurt his shoulder. The third ball is a full toss to Tendiskata who cloths it straight back to a shocked Broad who drops the catch. The ball dribbles out to mid-on and they take one. England, or actually just Broad, has had three wicket chances to start this over. Broad tries a wide Yorker to Shifley who misses it and they run. The ball is flung at the stumps by Foster. Broad backs it up and still has a run-out chance at his end, but he fumbles the ball and they complete the run easily. That's four consecutive fielding errors by Stuart Broad and eight run-out chances, and maybe nine if you count Broads. The second last ball, Broad goes for another wide Yorker, but he gets it as a half volley. Unfortunately, Tendiskata is trying to hit everything to leg, and he just drags it to mid-on, and is furious with himself. I guess in that moment, he goes just thinking, where's the gap, and trying to whack it over there, but it's quite remarkable, as you say, yeah, that, that was, was that, yeah. Edgar Schiffley is facing the last ball, but the Netherlands need two from it. In his career, he would play seven T20s and he'd average 3.5 with a strike rate of 41. In ODI cricket, he averaged 10. Schiffley was a reliable right-arm medium bowler, but he couldn't really bat. And he was going up against Stuart Broad, who would obviously end with more than 500 test wickets. Oh, and of course, Schiffley is also clutching his shoulder, which he hurt diving early on. 
But at the same time, England are trying to work out what to do next. James Foster calls for a helmet, and he's going to stand up to the stumps. But then they all kind of realise that's probably not a great idea. I had in my mind it was a draw, and that, right, they're going to get me to bowl. So I was thinking, God, first game of cricket, here I am bowling a super over. And I remember, guys, the last ball, we were all standing sort of like, you know, football style with penalties or like, was it Peter Bora next to me? He was just like clinching my shirt, but also had like a good chunk of my skin. So it's two from one needed for Netherlands to do the impossible. Broad goes full and straight. Shifley gets not much on it and it goes straight back to Broad. They run. And while on the ground, Broad picks up the ball, turns and throws. He misses the stumps. He also misses Paul Collingwood, who is backing up, who hasn't quite got to the stumps yet. Broad could have waited and flicked the ball to Paul Collingwood, and Shifley would have been out. But instead, he flung it hard, and the ball goes out to mid-off. But there is no mid-off. And for the first time this over, the ball leaves the fielding circle. Because of Broad's fifth fielding error, Shifley calls Tentascato back. They run two. They win the game. Two runs to win for Netherlands. Seward Broad stops it, doesn't get the direct hit. He's coming back for the second. Would you believe it? What an upset in the very first game of the ICC World 2020. Why'd he throw the last one? Why'd he throw it? <laughs> it was also remarkable that it was an overthrow because, I don't know, maybe the English didn't quite sort that out properly because surely someone's backing that up. I still thought the draw was on and couldn't believe that it went down to long off and they scampered through. And I, all I remember then was sprinting. That was, it was just brilliant. First, I had Peter Bourne crunching my shoulder, which wasn't great. Then he fell over, which was funny. And then there was just an explosion of euphoria of kind of unreal what we did. We straight away had that feeling when we're all charging towards Tendo and uh, Shifley or Eddie. Is that I think halfway down, I just changed direction towards like our people and made like a football style knee slide going, yeah, which I, I remember hugging Pete as well. And I had a couple of guys from Australia come out, jump on a flight to go and watch that game. My parents were there. I had Rellos over from Holland who came over to watch. You know, it was a pretty big deal for me, first game of international cricket. Uh, it was just an absolute buzz. I loved it. Yeah, I mean, it was just pure ecstasy, you know. Like, I, you don't, it was fun. It was really fun. It was a cool feeling running out in the middle, and then I think Peter Saylor and I sort of started, uh, it was just ridiculous behaviour, but we sort of ran off. I think seeing the English people leave the stadium very quickly and just having that little block of Dutch people going absolutely mental was fantastic. Because I think we stayed on the field even watching the highlights on, on the screen there because we never get to play in front of that. So it was cool. Pure joy, just not the sense of relief, because that sounds like we were expecting to win, but a sense of, oh, yeah, very, very cool. We stayed in the change room for quite a while, just with the group, and then that's, a, that's such a great feeling when you've just got just with the group and that sort of the excitement is still there, but you've sort of calmed down into this feeling where you sort of start to think that we've achieved something as a group, of course, but for Dutch cricket as well. And, and you're just with your mates and it was a good laugh and we're having a few beers and sitting on the balcony looking out over the ground and it was pretty cool. We were staying at the Marriott in Maidervale and the bar was basically just us and all Dutch fans and the Dutch ambassador came in and he was wearing a big orange floppy and they celebrate a little bit differently than Dutch. 
and they're singing and dancing. And it was though every five minutes the same newsreel repeated on TV, the, the Dutch beat England. And they we watched every single time from start to finish and we're celebrating like it was happening live. I can remember waking up the next morning. There was quite a bit of press stuff. But we had a late night and we probably drank too much, but there was no hangover the next day, right? Because still woke up in the morning on a high. Like it was just, it, it lasted quite a long time, that high. The emotion sort of later in the night, certainly the next day, was that I felt really unusual was people were worried about losing their jobs. There were a couple of guys in the team who had been away from work for so long. So the qualifying events, they take time off work and then they take a few weeks off to go to England to play in the World Cup. If we were to go through into the group stage, people were worried that they were going to get sacked from their job back home. So it was almost the joy of winning and the sadness or the, the, the worry of actually losing your livelihood as a result of the game. The inequity in the systems around the world just was so jarring to me then to have people who were making a decent living. You know, I'd just come off the back of the IPL. We might have got a 1000 bucks or something to go to the T20 World Cup tops. Bizarre. What did it do for Dutch cricket, do you think? Not as much as we've all hoped, if I'm being very honest. Cricket's a really interesting one, Jared, because it's not a traditional sport here by any sense. So at the time in Holland, it probably made a couple of headlines and people would have had cricket on the consciousness for one day that that happened. Even now, when if someone asks me in Holland what I do and I play cricket, then people sort of think, oh, they might bring up the fact that we might have beaten England one time. It didn't inspire, I think, a lot of people to say, I want to play for Holland. It hasn't triggered some huge influx of six foot eight Dutch guys to start bowling fast, which is a shame. The people that witnessed it and were there was like, yeah, I want to play for Holland. But that ambition... Yeah, like I said, because it's a single event, three months later, people have forgotten about it because they've watched about five football games again and go like, oh, yeah, that's actually where I want to be. Because it's not a continuous thing. I think that was the, the shame of it in terms of if you want cricket to grow, it needs to be a continuous thing. And it was just a single event, which I don't think maybe for a short while inspired some people, but not for the long run, I suppose. I think these days, if you ask a random cricket fan from any of the test playing nations, they would recognise the fact that Netherlands was a cricketing nation. And that night probably contributed quite a lot to that, as well as other things. But um, it, it did have a big impact. Cricket has always been in Holland. It's a very small, very proud cricketing community here. For those people who were in, in, in the cricketing community here in Holland, that was a massive day. If you have enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and share on social media. All of this helps find new audiences and advertisers, meaning we can just make more episodes. This podcast is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. If you really enjoyed this content and you want to support us, the links are in the show notes. Double Century is written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston produced this podcast. A huge thanks to DePeters Boren and Sailor, and also Dirt Nanus. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Duplessis is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.